0: there's a monster in the basement. And, um, and, and so a a lot of these people who kind of turned into never Trumpers, they, they, they recognized that these nativist and populist forces on the right were out there and had been out there for a long time, but they kind of thought that they'd taken care of the problem. They'd isolated it. Um, You know, they know the monster is still alive, but it's in the basement. Uh, He's locked up. We got the key. Um, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe every once in a while for an election or something, we can, we can let the monster out and, and whip up, whip up our, uh, our base a little bit and get them enthusiastic, but, but then we'll put the monster away.
1: This is a new angle and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the university of Montana college of business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is an interview with University of Montana political scientist Rob Saldine. Rob and his colleague, Stephen Tellis, recently released their new book, Never Trump Revolt of the Conservative Elites. And that release could perhaps not have been better timed. We recorded this conversation back in May, just before George Floyd was killed and a bunch of other stuff happened. Since it feels like the world is a different place since it was then, I asked Rob to join me for a brief update. Rob, thanks for carving out the time today. Hey, you bet, Justin. Good to be with you. So in the interview, we go deep into the premise of your book, but I do have a couple of questions. With the murder of George Floyd, the associated demonstrations, as well as the resurgence of coronavirus, particularly in red states, has anything changed with the Never Trump movement in your view?
0: Yeah, well, I, I do think the Never Trumpers are, are having a real moment uh, right now. There have been, uh, you know, not only those things you mentioned, but but also the, the story about the, the, the bounties on US troops in, in Afghanistan being paid by uh, Putin and Russia. Mm-hmm. So these things, I think, have, um, have, have provided a lot for the Never Trumpers to work with. And, and all this has happened just right at the time as some of these, um, organizations within the never Trump orbit have, have, have been really coming together. So we've seen, uh, the Lincoln project, uh, in particular, um, which is, which is basically a, a group of, um, of, of, uh, GOP operatives, political operatives, campaign people, um, they've, uh, uh, they've coalesced, and, and basically what they do is, is uh, put out a bunch of ads, and I, I actually think they've, uh, they've been some of the best ads of the, the cycle. One of their first ones was called Morning in America, and, um, and, and something, that is something that for um, conservatives and Republicans means something. Morning in America was a, was a famous ad put out. By uh, Ronald Reagan in his 1984 reelect, and it's it's actually one of the most famous political ads there's ever been. It's very subtle, um, and it's basically saying, "Look, things were things were bad back in, uh, in in the 70s under Carter, but but now it's morning again in America, and things are better, and things are looking up." And it's not necessarily about Reagan. Himself for the first uh, in, uh, the, the, the first term of his administration, but it, it's basically saying, "Look, th- things are a lot better. Things are looking up. Let's stay the course." And um, the uh, these Lincoln pro- Project Never Trumpers released their own ad called "Morning in America," but of course it's spelled differently, M O U, rather than you know "morning" as in the time of day. And um, uh, but 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 you know that whole concept of "Morning in America" that 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 that's something that resonates with. Um, with conservatives and Republicans who remember the Reagan years, and they put out a whole string of ads, um, and and they're, they're they're quite good, quite effective. And in fact, a lot of people have said, "Gosh, why can't uh, why can't Democrats put out ads that are that are this good?" And um, I think there are some differences. I mean, one, the 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 Lincoln Project folks are really trying to. Um, um, well, they, they, they come at it from a different, uh, from a little bit of a different perspective. And, and so in some ways they're, they're trying to speak to appeal to, um, people who, who used to vote Republican and, and maybe even still consider themselves Republican, but aren't happy with the president, um, things like that. So, um, so, so, so they do have a slightly different take. They, they have another ad where they, where they use a time for choosing, um, as kind of a tagline, which, which also really means something to, uh, Republicans and conservatives, because "a time for choosing" is a, is another Reagan line from his um, 1964 address, which is which is very famous, kind of a kind of a, a landmark statement in uh, the conservative movement world. Um, and it, 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 that that was a speech in '64 that launched Reagan's political career. So. Um, you, know, you know, they draw on culturally a lot of these things that resonate and, and are familiar to, to Republicans and conservatives. There's another group out there called uh, Republican Voters Against Trump, um, which basically feature uh, testimonials from a bunch of uh, just average, everyday, run-of-the-mill uh, Republican voters, a lot of whom supported Trump four years ago. But their basic message, and it's all in their own words, you know, about why they aren't going to support him anymore. A lot of those uh, draw on, you know, the George Floyd stuff, um, uh, the 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 Russia issues, um, that the handling of uh, of the virus, all of these things. And so, um, and and there are a couple other groups out there. There's a there, there's a group of former Republican members of Congress that are writing a bunch of op eds all over the country. There are um, a bunch of former Bush uh, 43. Staffers who who have formed their own group uh, to get the word out that um, that look a bunch of these uh, lifelong Republicans who've worked in Republican politics are now um, supporting Biden. So uh, and 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 I think all these messages are resonating. They're 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 resonating. Uh, I think because really maybe for the first time in the Trump administration, you see a lot of weakening support. Right. the, the story for so long was that Trump's support. At the beginning of his term, it was horrible, mm-hmm. uh, but it was only horrible really in the sense of uh, usually Republican or usually presidents in general start off really high and then it kind of declines over time. Well, well Trump was just steady as she goes for his whole term, right? Kind of in, in that low to mid 40s, um, which isn't where you want to be for reelection, but um, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it, it kind of puts you close enough. Well, just here uh, after the, the confluence of all these events, you, you see really for the first time... I mean, Trump's numbers are, are really, really declining. And, um, and so I think the never Trumpers have been pretty effective at, at pouncing on that. And, uh, like I say, they, they, they are kind of having a moment. They, uh, for a long time have been derided as being, um, you know, marginalized. They aren't important, you know, uh, you know, who cares what these washed up has have, have to say. Um, but, uh, but, 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 but they're really, um, uh, out there and uh, getting a lot of attention at this point.
1: So outside of simply kind of having a moment um, and sort of gaining the the, the fanciful thinking of, of liberals in particular, you know, do you, what do you, would you look for as I guess the way I frame it? Like, there's been a lot of off ramps, right? That that rank and file Republicans could take throughout this presidency, but but no one, you know, with the exception of Mitt Romney, has really taken those off ramps. What would it take for, like, a Mitch McConnell to say, you know what, let's wash our hands of this guy and save the Senate, or do something like that? And uh, maybe that's a that's a premise that you don't agree with. But but are there things outside of, um, I mean, I guess are there things you look for as markers of, hey, this might be serious this time around?
0: Yeah, well, sure, and 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 I think the you know we can make some important distinctions here. And maybe we talked about this last time. I can't quite remember, but you, you know, the the folks. We focus on in the book are tend to be what you know these members of, of what we call the extended party. These are basically elites only in the sense that that these are people who who uh, make their living through providing services to the party. So these aren't elected officials, but these are the people who run campaigns, the people who um, who uh, write uh, in the intellectual sphere in the public sphere as uh, as, as conservatives. Um, the, the people who staff administrations, you know, all these political appointees at, at the Pentagon and State Department and elsewhere, right? So it, that that's kind of the cohort that we focus on, and, and where the real action is in the Never Trump world. The the elected people, um, you're absolutely right, Justin. I mean, there, there hasn't been much. Uh, you know, a lot of them were anti-Trump back in 2016, but then most of them fell in line, and the ones who haven't, a lot of those got primaried. And are no longer serving, or just saw the writing on the wall and decided to bail. So, you know, people like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and Mia Love, um, you know, got primaried out. Mark Sanford is another one. You know, Mitt Romney, and I, th- I think is kind of only the real prominent one that's still out there. And then a third way of thinking about the, the anti-Trump Republicans would be just out there in the mass public.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, one of the stories there is that um, Trump is been able to, uh, to hold very steady with, uh, with Republicans. In fact, you know, he was even uh, tweeting about that yesterday or uh, maybe it was this morning, but saying, you know, huge support with Republicans and, and that's true. Um, but an important caveat there is that, well, a lot of people who, who used to identify as Republicans no longer identify as Republicans. So, so, so that group, that cohort of people out there in the mass public um, who who are calling themselves Republicans? That's a smaller number than it used to be. So so sometimes those um, indicators of Republican support for the president are a little misleading in that way. But in terms of the elected officials, like in Congress, you know, yeah, we absolutely are seeing in you know kind of off the record comments to the press that a lot of uh, Republicans in Congress are are extremely nervous and. You know there are some kind of toes in the water kind of things about well, you know, testing out how far you can push back on on Trump. The uh, the problem is, I think, is that it, it's coming a little too late. You know, to to get any credit for being anti-Trump, you you kind of have to do it at a time when there's some potential risk involved, and and where you 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 might get some some. Uh, some, some, some heat for it. I mean, to do it now, when Trump is, is at, is in a downward spiral, it, um, it risks just looking really, uh, really spineless and and just, just so, so cynical. And so I don't know that jumping ship now really is going to get any of these people much credit. I mean, so, so they really are in a bind. I mean, um, just just politically, and, um, you know, it's always... It, it, we, we can't peer into the hearts of these people, but I guess there are two stories here. One is that, you know, they've, uh, for all these years of the Trump presidency, when these folks have either remained silent or provided active cover for the president, that they either are eager and enthusiastic about everything we've seen from this administration, you know, from... Um, uh, you know, from from uh, the stuff here recently, but dating back to Charlottesville and, um, and and everything else that has gone down they're they're either totally on board with that and, and are excited about it or or they're just scared that um, saying saying that they uh, don't agree with the way Trump has handled some of this stuff that they're going to get um, get heat over Twitter from the president or something. So it's, um, you know, it's obviously a situation of their own making. Uh, to a large degree, right? These are grown up, and they, uh, you know, if they wanted to put some distance between themselves and the president, um, they've certainly had the opportunity to do so. But at this point, um, you know, I, I don't know how much, how much credit you're going to get for, um, for coming out and saying, well, uh, I disagree with uh, this or that or the other thing that the president's done, because um, it's, it's blatantly obvious to everyone that, uh, that the guy's in a, in a free fall, you know, at, at least for the time being and, and things can change of course, but, um, but, um, this is uh, quite clearly the, the low point of the Trump presidency.
1: Indeed. Well, things move fast, Rob. I appreciate you coming back for this, for this quick update. And I am excited for folks to learn more about your book right now. So you are a political science professor here at the university of Montana. You are also a fellow at the Mansfield center, um, w- within political science, what would you consider your field of study? I don't even know how political science is necessarily broken up as a field.
0: Yeah. So it, it, at least in the United States, it's broken up usually into four or five subfields. There's uh, American government, international relations, uh, comparative and political theory. Those would be the, the, the core four areas. And then um, sometimes public policy and public administration are are also in the mix. Sometimes they're kind of collapsed under some of the other categories. But within that framework, I, I do American government primarily and uh, and public policy too.
1: And how did you become interested in that? Tell, give us a little bit of, of a mini bio for yourself as a, as a professor and a scholar.
0: you know, I I was just always drawn towards uh to, towards politics and, and towards history from. From an early age, um, I mean, I, I I remember being being a kid and watching um, the, uh, the the Democratic and Republican conventions and um, back in back in 1988 when sure. I would have been you know 10 or 11. So so I I've kind of been into this stuff for for a long time and um, and then yeah you know I'd, I'd never really thought about being a, being a professor at the university level until. I was kind of getting done with uh, uh, towards the end of college, and, and um, you know was was not very eager about leaving because I, I enjoyed college, and, um, and and it kind of occurred to me, well, you know, gosh, you could uh, uh, these these professor gigs seem seem pretty good, and so, um, maybe, you know, what what does it take to, uh, to to get one of those jobs, and you could just uh, keep doing this for a career. Um, and, and of course it's kind of a long path, but, um, but you know, it it, it worked out nicely for me.
1: Yeah. That, you know, your words there resonate almost identically with how I describe it. You know, I was in in an MBA program, a graduate program, um, and looked at my professors and thought, yeah, that looks like a cool gig. Uh, for me, it was like my third attempt at a career. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful this one will stick. It seems to have stuck (laughs) quite well with you and, um, That's why I'm excited to talk to you today about uh, your work that's coming out, not only, you know, in in print in The Atlantic. I just got the copy of The Atlantic, but also your book, Never Trump, Revolt of the Conservative Elites. It's coming, or well, by the time this is aired, it will be out, recently published. Congratulations on that. And I'm excited to to talk to you about it today. How does a project like that come together?
0: Yeah, well... um... So my uh, the, the, the way this one came together, at least, you, you know, this is my third book and and they all kind of have a, a different story. But the way this one came together um, is, you know, through the, the 2016 process. I mean, uh, the, the election process. I mean, I, I was glued to the whole thing and um, sort of amazed to see this figure Donald Trump emerge within the Republican Party and um, and not get uh, blown out of the water by, sure. by the, some of the things he would say, you know, early on that summer of uh, 2015, the comments about John McCain, and, and it was just kind of one thing after another, um, that for any other candidate, uh, you know, it would have been the, the, been the end of the story. Uh, yeah, they, it just felt like
1: been... at every stage of the way, our conception of guardrails for decorum for candidates were just sort of blown away.
0: Ab- abs- absolutely, and so, and and you know, through through the whole primary process and through the general election, I mean, it was just uh, it was just one thing after another, and it was, it was just fascinating um, as a as a political scientist, but also someone who's just you know, I'm also a, a citizen, obviously, and, and and care about some of these things it was, mm-hmm. and 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 so just to w- watch this amazing process play out. Um, and, you know, one thing within political science, I've always been interested in are our political parties and, and groups within political parties and ideas and, and how they um, get embedded into parties. And, uh, and, and so, you know, one of the things that was so fascinating to me about 2016 is that you had this group emerge within the, the Republican Party uh, so some of the the leaders of the party not necessarily the elected officials but uh, all these people who would have been in line to staff the administration all the the thought leaders the you know the, the, the writers the intellectual side the the policy wonk people um, you, you had a whole bunch of these people emerge um, and and go all out in their opposition to uh to the guy who became their party's nominee and, and they stuck with it in many cases and and that's just and 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 in many cases that they're still sticking with it to this to this day, um, and that's just the kind of thing that you do not see very often in political parties. Uh, the, the stakes were high for this group. They, they've um, they, they've lost a lot in many cases, professionally, socially, um, and uh, so so it, it was kind of an amazing story. And um, you know, uh, at one point, I, uh, I I got in touch with Steve Tellis, who was the um the the editor of the series that that my book came out with, my second book. Um and so he and I had kind of worked together on that and, you know, we were just chatting over over texts and he was saying, you know, what's your what's your next project? And I said, well, I'm kind of thinking about doing something on these uh on these Never Trumpers. And, you know, based on a lot of elite level interviews and um he wrote back right away and said, Oh, you know, I know a lot about that and you know, be willing to work with you on it if you want it. And so um, you know, a few weeks later I was uh flying out to DC and doing our doing our first round of interviews and off and uh, running.
1: Yeah. And he's so your colleague Stephen, he's a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University, correct?
0: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, Steve's uh Steve's at Johns Hopkins. We uh were both University of Virginia PhDs, although okay. he was Kind of a generation ahead of me, so I, I I never knew him in my Charlottesville days, but 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 we, we kind of ran in some of the same circles, obviously knew a lot of the, the same people, um, so so we kind of had a connection that way, and uh, and Steve is also um, a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, which is a a, a newish think tank in in DC, and it's become uh, one of kind of the the, the hubs of uh, of these people associated with. Uh, the never Trump phenomenon., okay. so okay. you know that 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 really w- was a great source of of access um, uh, for 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 getting interviews with a lot of people that that form the basis of the book.
1: And so before we get into kind of the the phenomena you 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 outline and explore in the book, can we talk a little bit about for the lay listener, I mean, we have these conceptions of Republican Democrat, conservative, liberal, but conservative and liberal, th- those are terms grounded deeply in political theory. Can you maybe give us a little primer on 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 political theory and, and and how it manifests in terms of how liberals and conservatives view the world differently?
0: Yeah, well, um, right. So, you know, that that's one of the the, the tricky things with with terms like left and right and liberal and conservative, they, they, they do mean different things to different people mm-hmm. and, and they they also aren't, aren't uh, static, right? I mean, they, right. they, they change all the time. And I mean, one of the things that's fascinating to me right now is just seeing, you know, what it means to be a conservative right now and, and the popular understanding of that term. And, but, but, but it's also just a testament to how, how these words um, evolve and change, mm-hmm. right? They, 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 they aren't static but 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 generally I mean I think we can think about um, the, the the left and the right in in, in politics and um, and and within that you know so I, I think a lot of times people use the word liberal as kind of synonymous with the left um, that's that's not how how I understand it and okay. I don't think it's probably the best way of understanding it but but liberal to me is um, is kind of drawing on um, yeah you know some of the you wanna identify one thinker back there, you might associate it most with uh, the writings of John Locke, but it's, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a philosophy in which you, you value things like uh, individual rights, and um, that's kind of a, a, a real bedrock thing. And, and out of that, I mean, I th- what, what I think of as kind of liberal and the liberal tradition, you're talking about things like, uh, ideals like liberty and equality. And um pluralism and um and, and, and a lot of the things that kind of are uh at, at least in theory, what what undergirds American style democracy and, and you know Western democracies in general. Um and then on on conservative, I mean there's there, there's a, a there's a big debate actually within political science about um and, and just sort of the intellectual world in general, about the extent to which conservatism is its own separate ideology from liberalism or whether it's a kind of branch within, within liberalism. Right. And, and, and I think in a lot of ways that it's it's actually helpful to think about conservatism as as a kind of branch within liberalism, because at at least, at least what we've known as American style conservatism, because uh, I think like American style traditional conservatives and American liberals tend to agree on a lot of the, the, the fundamental premises and, and ideals, right? I, I think everyone's more or less in favor of the, the, the basic things like liberty and equality. And so where you really see the divide, I think, or one way of thinking about it is, um, is, is kind of the, uh, the extent to which you want to um, and, and are primarily concerned with maintaining the good Right and and think about things as though it's a struggle to maintain uh, and and pass down the good aspects of our society, right? And conservatives, I, I think, traditionally at least, um, would would be more oriented towards that direction. Um, and and then on the other hand, you, you liberals, I think, tend to look a little bit more towards 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 improving the. Uh, you know, what, what we have. So, so, so it's a, it, it's a little bit of a, a shift in terms of outlook. I mean, you, you, you could say there's, you know, glass half full, glass half empty kind mm-hmm. of distinctions. And, um and, and there's a little bit of a disposition to it too, right? It's like, um, I think a lot of conservatives uh, in the intellectual sphere anyway, would, would, uh, would, would think of themselves and present themselves as as, as saying, Hey, we've got it, we've got it really good here. Uh, the struggle for us is trying to maintain um, all these good aspects of, uh, of liberal democracy because it's very, very easy to lose those. Those could very easily slip away. So, so, so we've got to, the, the fight really is, um, is to maintain those things and, and we can work towards incremental change, but, um, but we should be a little skeptical of bold plans for, uh, for massive change and, and reform. You know, whereas liberals, I think, tend to focus more on problems, and um, you know, we, we 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 need big changes, big reforms to address these 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 problems that we have, right? So so so, at, again, at least in the intellectual sphere, I think that's where um, how how I've tended to think about conservatives and liberals in in America.
1: Okay, and that that's great context. So when we we enter a figure like Donald Trump you know it's it's disruptive on so many levels but in terms of your analysis are you thinking of you know in trumpism as an ideology that's distinct from conservatism or are you thinking of it as something else that's disrupting the the conservative worldview, like how are you kind of conceptualizing this introduction of, of this new character and the ideas, um, that, that he's bringing to the conversation?
0: I don't think Trump and Trumpism, I, I don't think there's an ideology there. Okay. Um, I don't think it's a coherent set of beliefs that all fit together, um, or a coherent outlook, um, at all. And in fact, I mean, um, but 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 definitely, it's I in my way of thinking. Anyway, it's very different from conservatism. Conservatism understood through uh, like the tradition beginning with Edmund Burke, right? And a, a lot of that is like um, so, some of the points I was just making. But also like this, um, you know, incremental change. This respect for tradition, uh, a, a respect for carrying oneself in in, in a certain way, mm-hmm. a, a, a respect for norms, right? That that. You know, we should we should be careful about you know just throwing out our our norms and traditions because sometimes th- these are in place for a good reason, right? And so, I mean, in a lot of ways, I I think Trump is um, is the exact opposite of a of a conservative, right? He's um, he's there, there's a populism to it. He uh, he certainly taps into something that's out there, and, and but yep. it's not clear that. That kind of Burkean understanding of conservatism is um, is necessarily going to uh, going to endure, right? It it, it might be that that, uh, that 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 we're seeing what it means to be a conservative uh, changing before our eyes, and and in some ways this isn't new. I mean, there's always been, especially especially here in the West, there has there has been this kind of populist brand of conservatism. Um, and, and you see it pop up from time to time. Um, you know, dating back to you know Barry Goldwater and um, and, and uh, you know um, through uh, Pat Buchanan and uh, Sagebrush Rebellion and uh, Sarah Palin, and uh, the Tea Party, and, and 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 all these things. But um, but in, in in my way of thinking, anyway, that, that that's not exactly um, conservative. Yeah,
1: and within that, it seems you know the 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 monster in the basement metaphor emerges from that pretty clearly um you know and, and initially, like you said, there was a lot of high profile thinkers politicians etc., that were firmly in the never trump um in the never trump camp, if you will, and then you know Trump gets elected and you see gradually you know the those the prominent voices are starting to fade away at least the elected voices the you know, the, the Jeff Flake types, they, they, they stay, um, you know, uh, publicly against what's happening with the, the Trump administration, but they re- retire right. from office and, uh, you know, probably going to be primaried out if they had stayed in, in the running. Yeah. Um, and so you start
0: forced retirement,
1: right. Forced retirement. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, you know, your article in The Atlantic, um, that's sort of in a, in an ad- adaptation of a, an excerpt from the book, starts with this, you know, character that probably nobody's ever heard of, this guy, Joel Searby, who yeah. led this insurgent effort to recruit Condoleezza Rice to run against Trump in 16. Was that kind of the, the premise of, of, his, of his efforts to, uh, to be part of this Never Trump world?
0: Yeah. So, um, so, so right. I mean, just a word on, on the elected officials. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was remarkable back, back in 16. I mean, there, there, there were a lot of, I mean, most, most elected officials on the Republican side were, were, were opposed to Trump. And I, I remember just being stunned um, when, when Chris Christie, uh, dropped out and endorsed Trump. Right, that was that was the the second major endorsement Trump got. The first one was Jeff Sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they uh, flew into a big rally at some football stadium in uh, in Alabama. I remember watching that, and that was that was kind of the first um, the first time that it that it hit me like, wow, there there is really potentially something here.
1: A new angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana
0: this is Sam Schultz and you're listening to a new angle um, and then and then the Chris Christie endorsement but yeah, you know but those in a way are kind of typical as you suggest I mean all, all these politicians who were opposed to him back in 16 you know they've all they, they've all changed they, they've all flipped.
1: Maybe either so flipped for, for or the- or or disappeared. Uh, I mean, other than Amit Romney, yeah. who sort of recently emerged as as an anti-Trump voice on on the right, but everybody else has fallen in line or died. John McCain, well, that right, 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 right. And
0: and and Romney Romney was there all along, but but really, in a way, Romney was kind of the only one. I mean, Lindsey Graham, um, who's now right. you know the the chief cheerleader. I mean, he was he was one of the sharpest critics back in '16. I I remember he, he had he had this great line. When it when it got down in the primary to just uh, Trump and, and Ted Cruz and um, and and Lindsey Graham equated it that choice to um, to being shot or drinking poison and and he said that um, that that he'd take Cruz which he equated to the poison because if you take poison you might find an antidote, right? right? So there's, so there, 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 was still hope, but of course that, you know, that was years ago. Now he is where he is. You know, one of the, uh, I, I was down in South Carolina, just a little side digression. I was down in South Carolina, the last trip I took um, before this pandemic hit uh, for, for, I was down there for uh, the South Carolina primary, and mostly went around um, following some of the democratic candidates down there. But uh, the last night I was there, Trump held one of his big rallies, which okay. I, uh, which I went to. And, um, and, and there was, uh, there was Lindsey Graham, you know, up on stage. It, this was actually the, the rally where Trump kept saying, um, that, that, uh, COVID-19 was, it was a hoax. Okay. So it, it was actually the second to last rally he had before, uh, before those got shut down. But, um, but the transformation of Lindsey Graham, I think really, um, is a stand in for a lot of these elected officials. Um, so, that and, and so for, for the Never Trumpers, the the, the the real Never Trump people that we're looking at in the book, I mean, um, they, they they kind of have scorn and contempt for for most of these uh, for most of these politicians. And really, we say, you know, where where the, the hub of never Trumpism is, it's it's not with the elected officials. Right? Um, because you know, most of them have changed, mm-hmm. right? Romney is kind of the one holdout. And then the others, as you suggest, you know, Jeff Flake uh, basically made the calculation that he was going to get crushed. And so he quit. Um, you know, Justin Amash is out there. I guess right, He left the party. Um, uh, Mark Sanford uh, from, from South Carolina right, got primaried um, because, uh, you know, and, and Trump was behind his primary challenge. Right. And so um, really where the action is um, are with all these people. Um, who, you know, we think of it as these uh, service providers to the party. And, um, and that includes, like, all the people who would normally be staffing an administration. And so we're looking here at, like, foreign policy and national security experts, uh, lawyers, economists, right? All the people who you need to fill these 4,000-plus uh, political appointments um, in each administration, Right, it's 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 among these people where you get a lot of never Trumpers. Another another big constituency are the the public intellectual types, so mm-hmm. like op-ed or you know uh, columnists, the and, George and, uh, Will's
1: and, and the Bill Crystal right. types. Yeah,
0: yeah, and um, right, and a big constellation there in that kind of intellectual policy wonky, you know, columnist world, and and then the the other big source. Of Never Trumpism is uh, or, or was among the campaign professionals, and Joel Serber, the, the, the guy you referred to, who uh, who we used to, to lead off the, the Atlantic piece, right? He was he was one of the ringleaders in that political operative world. So so like the, the all these people who run campaigns, right? And there there are thousands of these people um, on, on in, the De- in the Democratic Party and and the Republican Party, and um, you know those. And, and each of these groups kind of has their own unique story, and, and we actually think there that that a lot of what explains the, the behavior of these of these people, you know, there are some cross-cutting things, of course, but a lot of what explains these the, the way people behaved is, uh, is is owes to their professional grouping. Right. Mm-hmm. So each of these groupings has its own story, but the uh, the, the campaign professionals um, those those are the people kind of most are most like the elected officials, right? The uh, all, almost all of them were never Trump at the beginning, but then as he gets closer and closer to winning the nomination in 2016, more and more of them flip. And, um, and part of the reason for that, you know, we think is that these people who work on campaigns like Joel Sirby, um, you know, they are totally dependent on Staying in the good graces of the party, right? right? That is like they pay their mortgage um, by by being in good standing with the Republican Party, mm. and that is that's really different than like the columnists, right? Yeah. Like George Will, um, you know, he he has a great job, right? And he's
1: he's yeah, going to get he's not paid- going to get primaried the- or lose his job because he can't yeah. agree to the talking points or whatever, right? Yeah.
0: Right, and so so he's he, he's not. He has the independence to be able to do that. And the same is true with a lot of the the kind of policy people, um, right? Like a lot of these national security foreign policy types, you know, they've, they've served in government a lot, but when they aren't doing that, they, they go back to their universities or they go to their think tanks, right? These people have other, other sources of income. Um, These, these political pros, most of them do not, right? And so, um, in that world, the, the Joel Sirbys are, are the people who kind of stand out, and and Sirby has lost a tremendous amount. I mean, okay. he was one of these guys who worked kind of in at the mid level. He wasn't one of the Republican celebrity consultants like like Mike Murphy uh, or Stu Stevens. I mean, these guys are you know talking heads on TV, and um, and they 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 both write and do 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 all kinds of things. They've also made uh the, these celebrity guys they they've also made millions and millions of dollars over over the course of their they're they're financially set up um they don't need it Sirby on the other hand you know he ran a consulting firm in Florida and um you know he 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 can't do that work anymore uh, you know so he's i mean just financially been um, been crushed by this but um but yeah so in so in 16 um he uh he he, he tried kind of just on his own um, went to work trying to figure out what it would take to field a third party candidate right what what would it take just logistically to get somebody on the ballot in in all of these states and and every state is different right there's not just one procedure there's 50 procedures oh yeah
1: so arcane state by um, state absolutely yeah
0: and the and the rules are different everywhere. And um, but, but so he did all this research just on the side. This was kind of a side project because he was uh, he was so mortified at what was happening. And um and, and he he ran this poll and the poll came back and it's like the the one the one name that tested highest was was Condi Rice. And so he just started cold calling um, her her uh, secretary. Or, yeah, he got a lot of uh, news. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of those, but, um, at some point, you know, he put together all these memos and, um, and, uh, and, and one of those kind of, uh, somehow ended up in the, in, in the hands of Bill Crystal, who, um, who was the editor of the weekly standard, the weekly standard was kind of this neoconservative, uh, journal that, uh, that shut down a couple of years ago, a little over a year ago, maybe, mm-hmm. um, Basically, because it was uh, too anti-Trump, um, but Crystal got involved. A handful of other uh, political consultants, and they kind of launched out on this mission to find a third-party candidate. And uh, you know, by the time Crystal and the others got involved, Sirby had already been um, had, had already been beaten into submission by uh, by Condi Rice's people uh, down at Stanford. Um, but then they set off, and and they uh, they. They uh, they they tried. I mean, they 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 tried as we document in the book. Just a, I mean, a, a huge number of people. Um, but there were three big targets, right? There was um, uh, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, and uh, uh, James Mattis. Mm-hmm. And with all of those three, um, you know, they 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 took meetings with this with this group and thought seriously about it. Uh, in the end, didn't quite pull the trigger. You know, and, and one of the things kind of overhanging all of this, um, I think, is that, um, you know, everyone knew that that Hillary Clinton was going to win, right? And, and so that that shapes kind of how everybody is thinking, how everybody goes about this. But, um, you know, one of the, you know, if I, I do wonder if um, the Mattis's and the Romneys and the Sasses, you uh, Took more seriously the, the the possibility of Trump actually winning the election if um, if that might not have turned out a little differently.
1: Right, that's a really interesting kind of way to think about it. I guess, you know, it's it's a, it's a way to transition perhaps to to looking forward. I mean, one of the things you discuss in, in the Atlantic piece and probably covered in longer form in the book is this notion of homogeneity within the parties that traditionally. Um, you know, there's there's not a lot of homogeneity within political parties, um, and yep. maybe there is right now in the on, on on the right, but but this is maybe unique. And so, how how is that sort of how do we view this moment historically, and and maybe make sense of it going forward?
0: Yeah. So, um, right. So so yeah, we we kind of end the book. This is kind of the how how we dealt with the end of the book problem. Right. In in books like this, there's always this question. Well, okay, like you, you kind of have to say something at the end um, to, to, to 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 wrap things up and and um, and and look towards the future a little bit. So 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 this is how uh, Steve and I dealt with this. But but kind of one maybe fundamental thing that, that that we think is is important in in thinking about what's happened, but also thinking towards the future is the role of, of polarization. And, um, you know, there, there, there's this uh, political scientist at, at Yale, who's done some, uh, so some really amazing work. Um, most of it is in other countries, but, uh, but, but a little bit in the United States here too. But, but the, um, but, but the, the, the kind of thing he gets at that, that, that's motivating his, uh, his research agendas is what happens when you have a situation in which um, uh, people's policy preferences um, are in tension with the, the maintenance of, of democratic norms, right? And so what happens when you kind of have these populist quasi-authoritarian leaders come up who, who are on the same team um you know in terms of like party and policy but who are also a threat to democratic norms you mm-hmm. know what, what what do people do in this situation and, um, and and one of his ideas is that you know um, and to, to, to kind of uh, I'll, I'll put it and kind of uh, you know use a sports analogy here but but the idea is you know if um, if you think about um, American politics or any country's politics, you know, playing out on, 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 a, on, on a football field. Uh, you know, one of the things that's been observed about the United States is that the, the differences between the parts, like our, the, the span of uh, political and policy discourse is, is pretty narrow in the United States re- relative to, to a lot of other countries. So, so you can think about, like in the United States, maybe uh, our politics and policy, you know, the, the policy ideas that are on the table are all kind of contained within the 40 yard lines, right? Um, and in some other countries it, it's much wider, right? But 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 we do have a fairly narrow, narrow window, right? Our left doesn't go nearly as far left as it does in a lot of other countries, right? Maybe sure. you know, maybe that's changing a little bit right now with Bernie Sanders and all of that. But 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 traditionally this is the case and our right doesn't extend as far right right so, so so we're kind of playing between the 40 yard lines but what happens when you have a situation of polarization which which we've increasingly had and all of a sudden politics is getting played out between the 20 yard lines right i either, either either in reality or or just because people perceive that mm-hmm. and and you know there's this whole industry of people out there whose job it is basically to um, to to tell people that um, you know every, uh, you know everything's gonna be lost if um, if the other side wins, right? Yeah, now they push, thinking, those commentators
1: <laughs> push us well beyond those twenty yard lines, or at least that's the incentives you know, we push well absolutely them that, that yeah. that's
0: yeah. Well and 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 again there's this question of like, well is that is that really happening or or is that just sort of you know, th- this distortion of reality. Sure. But, but, but regardless, the point is if things get out to the 20 yard lines or the tens or wherever it may, may be um, the idea of the other team winning is, is really a dire situation, right? It's one, it's one thing if you're, if, if you would prefer one 40 yard line and the other team wins and, and, and okay, they push it to the other 40 yard line. You know, okay, fine, not great, but it's like we can live with that. But what, what, what if, what if the, what if the other team's going to take it all the way to, uh, to, to the goal line, right? And and that breeds this kind of um, existential thinking, like this is an existential crisis. There was this, uh, this essay that that like perfectly encapsulated this back in 2016 that ran in the Claremont Review of Books, which is which is kind of like the conservatives' version of um, the New York Review of Books. Or something. Okay. Right, it's called the, the, the Flight 93 uh, election, and, um, and and the basic idea was that that we are in a Flight 93 scenario, and um, th- this this was an article arguing in defense of supporting um, uh, Donald Trump. Right, and the idea was that if if uh, if, if if Hillary wins, um, the the country as we know it is is over. Right, that, that was the thesis of this piece. Um, which struck me and still does strike me is, is is totally ridiculous, especially especially given that it was Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, right, it, right. right, But 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 in any event, in any event, right? That 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 mode of thinking, right? Like this is an all-out crisis, and if we lose, the game is over. Literally, the country as we know it is over, and we have lost forever. Right. That kind of thinking, not not like this is just one election. And okay, well, we lost that one. We'll come back and duke it out over the next one. No, but like it's it's all over. Right. And uh, and and there were, by the way, I mean, you you can see how maybe some conservatives would get into this frame of mind. Right. Uh, We talk a lot about how the Supreme Court is on the election or is is on is on the ballot this election. Well, it actually really was on the ballot last time because you had that uh, that seat that Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Scalia seat. Right. And that was open. And, you know, so for some of these people on the right, it's like, man, if Hillary Clinton gets in, I mean, not only have we lost Scalia, who was the intellectual leader of the conservative legal movement, but it's like, that's gonna, that's gonna flip. You know, we've lost the court forever, this kind of thinking. Um, And so um, when you get into that kind of a state of mind, it's easier to say, well, okay, we'll sacrifice the democratic norms. Because because the policy costs that are being asked of you are are so great, right? And so I, I think that that is one kind of way of understanding why um, why some conservatives said, you know, what I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to bite the bullet here, and you know, I, I don't love Trump, and I don't I don't love all the all the the things he says and the behaviors and this, but it. It's, it's just too much. It's too much to ask. Stakes are too um, high. Yeah, and, and stakes are too high, right? And so, you know, I, I think that that whole polarization background is, is 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 important. And so, you know, in a lot of other countries, right? So, so this is a long way to get back to your to your question, Justin. But in a lot of other countries, you know, you have these multi party systems, and that's basically the way you deal with um, this problem of like um, of, of polarization. It's like, well, there, there are two in, in our country, we have two parties. And, um, and if you don't like either of them, you know, that's, it's like, there aren't enough options. Well, well, this is a problem faced, faced everywhere. And in a lot of other countries, you know, they, they deal with that with multi-party systems. And so you have, you know, you have a center left party and a center right party and, you know, parties farther out on the left and farther out on the right and, um, everywhere in between. Well, in, in, in our our country, we, so many of our institutions um, push towards a two-party system, and, and you know, this is a reason why, why we've, we've uh, attempts to start a third party you know, don't work, and we haven't had a new party uh, come on the scene since the Republican Party came on the scene in the late 1850s, right? So it's just really hard. So uh, like, for instance, our, our elections, we have winner-take-all elections, um, we, we, we don't have proportional representation, right? So, so, so that makes it really hard for, for third parties. Now, traditionally in the United States, the way we deal with this um, is, is that we have factions. We've had factions within the parties. So, so the parties themselves have not been internally uh, homogenous in the way that they are now, right? I, th- I mean, I think this is one of the real striking things about our parties today is internally um, they're, they're, they're very, they're, they're very homogeneous, right? It, and it was the case, you know, we political scientists have all these ways of measuring ideology and whatnot. And, um, you know, you, you can look at scatter plots of members of Congress over time and like where they fall on the ideological spectrum. And it used to be that you had a lot of, um, Democrats who were more conservative than, than some of their Republican colleagues, right? Well, as of, uh, several years ago, that, that, that's over, right? 435, uh, um, members back in, uh, back, back in, uh, the, the, the house of representatives and they're, they're, they're all now perfectly, perfectly sorted, right? So, so your most liberal Republican is still more conservative than your most conservative Democrat,
1: right? right? Um, and that's, so, I mean, that's akin to those, that's in many ways that those, those yard lines, you know, that, that, that football metaphor works there as well, I think, as far as yeah. scoping the debate.
0: Right. And so, you, you know, the, 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 the bottom line is that, um, you know, there, there, there's a demand for more options out there. Right. And, and uh, for 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 these institutional reasons, you know, we we don't think multi-party, third-party. I mean, you know, maybe that would be desirable um, if 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 you're kind of designing something from scratch. But given our given our institutional structure, it's just really hard. So so, and again, the, the way we've traditionally um, handled this in the United States is that our, our parties have have uh, have have had different factions within them. So I mean, just. Kind of most recently, or, or, or something that I think most people can can kind of recall and, and, um, and remember a, a little bit, if, if if through lived experience or or just through uh, a little study of history. But you know, it wasn't that long ago that you used to have uh, conservative Southern Democrats, right? That mm-hmm. was a real that, that was a real uh, a block. It was a constituency. It was an organized faction. They had their own set of uh, institutions, and and then you had. Um, you had your kind of like northeast um, Democrats who were who were like really different, and so you know it wasn't that long ago that you know if if somebody just told you they were a Democrat that didn't necessarily tell you all that much, right? You'd have to ask more questions. Well, are you are are you a Southern Democrat or are you a you know a Bobby Kennedy Democrat or you know. Um, and 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 it was those those uh, second and third questions and the answers to those that would really tell you um, tell you a lot. And, and the Republican Party, you know, I think this is a, a somewhat less well known story, but the Republican Party had that same thing going on in the same era. Um, you had your kind of stalwart uh, uh, Republicans, you know, from the Taft tradition in Ohio, but then but then you really had um, a, a batch of liberal at the very least moderate, but even liberal Republicans, um, people uh, centered around Nelson Rockefeller in, uh, in, in New York, and, you know, there's a whole another batch on the West Coast, but so, um, you know, the, the, the point is that, that these factions within the parties, they were, they, they, they kind of had something of a shared mission in terms of trying to win the presidency but they also competed against one another within the party. Sure. And what's notable about the last few decades is that we do not really have any of that intraparty faction uh, activity going on. And so, you know, Steve and I do wonder if, um, if, if we aren't kind of set up for a return to that right now. And, you know, we're, we're we're careful in the book not to say like this is a prediction, right? Um, S- Steve and I are, are in some ways are um, not quite your, your your typical social scientists. A lot of social science uh, kind of kind of tries to be predictive and 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 to set up these kind of ideas that that, that things are almost predetermined and that we can, um, yeah, you, know, you know, that there's a, a kind of law to certain things. And you know, we. We don't think that's quite the case. I mean, we we think there's a lot of agency, um, individual agency at work here, and, and it's going to matter a, a great deal uh, if we're going to have these factions of, about what individual people do, and and that that might mean politicians, but but it also means just things like philanthropists, mm-hmm. and you know, are, are you are you going to give your money um, to some? you know, to some kind of, uh, idealistic crusade to, to start a third party, or are you going to do it to kind of try to build up a faction within a party, right? A lot of, a lot of philanthropists are drawn towards, um, are, are drawn in, in, in the other direction, but, um, but so we'll see, but, um, you know, I, I do think you can, uh, you can already see a little bit of this perhaps happening on the democratic side. You know, you have, uh, you have this group that that has uh, emerged around around Bernie Sanders and AOC and the Squad, but the Democratic Socialists of America. I mean, they already do um, have some of the, the kind of beginnings of that kind of institutional structure, right? It's not just a it's not just a group of people who um, who, who journalists kind of identify as as a group, but but an actual organized uh, set of institutions. Um, to uh, to to compete for power within the party, right? That, that's a kind of thing we're talking about. A, another example would be um, what I think of as kind of the last time we've really had an organized faction was uh, uh, the Democratic Leadership Council, uh, hmm. which emerged back in the '80s, right? So this was uh, the the outfit that Bill Clinton was was very uh, very much associated with. Also, like Al Gore, and there were a bunch of others. But 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 the the premise for starting the Democratic Leadership Council, you had um, a bunch of basically centrist Democrats coming out of the 84 election which was uh, a total wipeout of Walter Mondale by uh, by Ronald Reagan and then um, a, a, another in 1988 um, a, another tough election for Democrats Michael Dukakis lost to uh, George HW Bush so three three in a row three uh, real decisive Republican victories in in, in a row and, and these, this group of uh, centrist Democrats said, "Look, we we need to organize ourselves and and fight for for the soul of the Democratic Party, or are we just going to keep getting crushed?" Um, and so they put together, uh, you know, they started a think tank. They 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 uh, um, put together a whole kind of governing set of policies. Uh, they 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 had. Uh, an organized board, and again, Bill Clinton was, was one of the, the, the first politicians to sign on, and it was really uh, um, largely with, with the help of the DLC that uh, that, that, that he rose to power, uh, nationally anyway. And um, that so, so that was kind of the last one of these that we've had, and it just seems to us, you know, there, there, there is this um, demand out there for more than just two options. Um, starting more parties, um, that, that have any plausibility of being competitive seems really unlikely. And so a more, a more natural way forward out of, this, um, out of this situation might be the return of these factions. Right? And again, we can kind of see that already happening maybe on the Democratic side. Um, and it would be, uh, or I, I guess we say, look, there, there's an opportunity there perhaps on, on the Republican side. Um, for for something like that to form and, and presumably you know it would be a lot of these people who were active in never trump who would be the people who would who would be interested in such a project perhaps um, although they, they they might also be interested in, uh, in in a more moderate faction within the Democratic party too but uh, but but presumably the, these would be these would be uh, the, the, the people who would be taking leadership roles potentially in that kind of a vision of the future.
1: Yeah, that's interesting to think of it as far as like how these disruptions happen um, within the parties for, from inside or from outside, et cetera. Uh, you know, Rob, before we close, I got to get you, it's so rare that I get to talk to a political scientist. So I got to ask you about two things that are super pressing right now. The first is the election. You know, what do you, what are you thinking about how this election is going to, is going to happen, and in what form, and and what are the critical kind of inflection points that uh, that you're looking at as far as um, our ability to execute a fair election at this moment?
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, here in Montana, um, we're we're kind of fortunate. I think we we had a lot more advance warning for one, and um, in, in terms of our primary, and um, you, know, you know, some of these. Some of these states were, you know, having having to grapple with this, you know, right at the time that, that all the shutdowns were happening and everything mm-hmm. else. The other the other way in which we're fortunate, I think, is that we have a strong tradition of uh, mail in voting uh, that that is not not the norm in every state. Right there, are, this is another one of these things where you know states get to de- get to determine how they run their elections, and so, um, you know, you have. these different all these different rules in place and in some states there are a handful that have exclusively mail-in voting but 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 not most states and 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 a lot of states um have either a a very weak tradition of mail-in voting or or really don't have it at all Uh, and so you know for us here in montana i think the thought of going to uh um exclusively vote by mail thing, I mean, is, um, is certainly more uh, just logistically within the realm of things we could do. Um, and, and so I think we've already seen kind of, uh, you know, the, in, in the lead up to the to the primary, those things being put in place. And then, you know, that could obviously be extended to the general election. But I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are concerned that there's going to be a second wave of sure. this virus at some point fall and um it's hard to know when exactly but you know a lot of the scenarios you know suggest kind of you know late october right 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 before the election well, yeah right when it so, counts so uh, so i mean my my thinking on this has been certainly in, in the state of montana for the primary it was really important to try to have the primary go down on schedule Right, we had we had the time to prepare for it, and and just you know, once you get in the business of postponing elections, I, I that just always makes me a little nervous. Sure, such so, bad
1: precedents <laughs> for sure. It's not a
0: precedent you want to set. And I'm 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 firmly in the camp that you know we have in this country voted and held elections on schedule through all kinds of um, uh, terrible times, and that's just not something we do, and that's not necessarily to cast a lot of blame on some of these states that have postponed their, their primaries. Um, you, you know, that was a tough situation. Um, and, you know, you're, you're trying to respond really quickly with, with a lot of uncertainty. And so that's one thing, but look um, this election in November, we, we, we have plenty of lead time on that. And so it seems to me, there are, there are a lot of things you could do. I mean, the, the most obvious is is uh, is go to an exclusively vote by mail thing or or even just strongly encourage people to do that, right? That alone would be would, would solve uh, uh, a lot of the problem. And, and you can also think about having an extended period in which to vote, right? Like you know having having the polling places be open, um, you know, not just on election day, but but over the period of you know several days sure. or a couple of weeks or, or, or whatever you want to do. So so it seems to me, I mean, um, there 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 are definite definite ways of dealing with this issue. And, um, and even taking into account some of the politics around it, you know, the, uh, the Republicans don't, don't like vote by mail, um, now, and that, that's kind of, there's a whole history to that that's played out in recent years, but, um, you know, there, there, there are other ways of, uh, of, of dealing with that. But, but to me, I mean, the, the the thing that is most important is that, we we need to have the election, and we need to have the election as scheduled. And and we've got and we've got the time to uh, to, to pr- put procedures in place um, to do that um, uh, with reasonable levels of safety, even if we are faced with a second wave of this, you know, right around election day.
1: I can't agree more. I mean, the time is uh, is there. We just need to use it. it. It's. I think the government has sort of a mixed history of of using the time it has to to reach. Uh, Um, useful solutions, but, um, but yeah, let's, let's hope they can, uh, figure some things out. And you're right. I think we are particularly well-suited here in Montana for, uh, for a successful election and one that the public can trust. Um, Rob, so fun to catch up, to hear, learn more about your work. And, you know, the book is never Trump revolt of the conservative elites available. I'm sure wherever you buy books, um, Hopefully by the time people are listening here, maybe they can go down to the local bookshop and get a copy or at least uh, stand outside while they bring a copy out to you. Um, Right. Yeah. So, Rob, great thanks. Good luck with the book and um, look forward to maybe seeing you on campus soon.
0: Yes. Yeah. Me too, Justin. Hey, good talking with you. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, Our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson, Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes, and finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.